I want to invite you to uh, bow your heads with me as we pray and as we prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God. Uh, this morning, uh, the invitation is very simple, as it always is as a church, that we desire to hear the Word so that we may live according to it. We're not seeking just to become smarter Christians, but more faithful ones, ones who listen, trust, and obey. And so I ask that you join me and make this the prayer of your heart this morning, that as the word is proclaimed, we would together hear, listen, and be faithful. Father, we thank you for the gift of your church and the gift of this community of faith located here in Calgary. You have called us to follow you. And as the song that we have just sung painted a picture for us that such following is directed towards a cross. Our following is not to our own significance or our own achievements. Our following is towards a life that is defined by the Lordship of Jesus Christ, one that represents the very best of God's grace, not only for us, but for our world. One that requires at times an obedience, perhaps even at times sacrifice, but a following that promises us this, that as we follow the one who is resurrected, we will share in such hope in this life and in the life to come. Father, I ask this morning that the simple thoughts, as I reflected upon your word, would be that which comes from you to us. May we hear your spirit, your word, your hope. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. We give ourselves to things we love. Our energy, our talents, our time, our money. If you want to know what matters to us, think about the things that we are committed to and spend most of our time and energy on. You will find uh, that sometimes the things we say we care about are not necessarily the things we actually care about. Some describe it this way. They say we have aspirational values and actual values. Let me give you an example. I value physical health. I believe in it, but I haven't been to the gym in a long time. Actual, aspirational. If you want to know what matters, what captures my attention, then you'd have to look closely at my life to see where I spend my time, my energy, and my resources. You will find, as you navigate your own life, that there are some things that become very clear as significant and important. Things like family, things like our children, things like school, or our careers, things like being involved in the church, all important things that can reveal a priority, an affection, a commitment. 
There are lesser things we give our time to. For example, Xbox. Facebook. Twitter. Or Insta. I don't know why that solicits laughter. Older people say Instagram, but you know who I am. Very with it. Sometimes we become frustrated with people who show an affection to something we don't have an affection for. Sometimes we question the loves that people have and we kind of criticize them for spending a lot of energy and time on things that we wouldn't spend our time and energy on. In fact, in the church, Though we all profess to love Jesus and love God and desire to serve him, there are perhaps times in which the way we want to go about doing that is not the way somebody else will choose to go about that. So in our church, we have those who love praying, intercessory prayer. We have those who love acts of compassion and service and outreach. We have those who love praise and worship, those who love to be in community and in small groups. And as your pastor who knows the diversity of your passions and the different ways in which you want to worship and love God, I have the privileged perspective to say that, that the common thing in every person here, irrespective of their propensity, desire, or the expression of their love for God, is that in fact, we all desire to show God our love. Mary and Martha are a great example of this. Uh, in Luke's gospel, not in John, there's a, there's a story of uh, Jesus showing up in the home of Mary and Martha. And you remember this story because Jesus plunks himself down and Mary falls at his feet while Martha is doing the work. Remember this? And Mary, <laughs> Mary seems to be quite content at the feet of Jesus while Martha is doing all the work. And when we hear that story, when we hear that depiction, I think most of us here probably feels for Martha. Kind of go, Mary, that's not what is required right here. See, Martha displays for us this kind of perspective of understanding that at times others will show a love and a devotion for God in a way in which we perhaps are not geared to or ready for. When I teach on that particular Lucan passage, I, I want to say to people, don't lean too hard in either way because both those women demonstrates for us what it means to love God. One is being hospitable and serving. We need the servers. We need people who get their hands dirty. People who get things ready. This church cannot be what it is without such people. And all God's people says, amen. In fact, I would say to you, at times we all need to be servants. At times we all need to get our hands dirty. At, all, at times it requires that. But there are also times where we need to be like Mary. At the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. 
and refrain from being the kind of people who do not make room for the diverse ways in which all of us seek to honor God. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all ways of honoring God is honoring God. Can I get an amen? But within the church, as the Apostle Paul so eloquently states in his New Testament letters, that the body is comprised of many parts, many parts. And what is important in the body of Christ is that all parts find their place. All parts find their connection. All parts find their purpose. That's just my introduction. Mary has already demonstrated in Jesus' encounter with Jesus that there is a posture, a way of demonstrating love to God that begins with sitting at his feet. Over the years, I have had the privilege of counseling many people. I do a lot of premarital counseling. See you guys tomorrow. <laughs> and in premarital counsel, I often would reference a particular book. It's called The Five or the Love Languages. Is anybody, can you raise your hand? You know what it is? So let me just check with you. This is all very, very ceremony, so don't get distracted. The author, Gary Chapman, this book has been in the top, has been the New York bestseller, and it has been at the top. And I have a trained marriage counselor back there as well, and some in the front here, so they, they can tell you if I'm lying. This book has been in the top five books for decades on how to have a flourishing relationship. And the premise of the, the book is quite simple, that as human beings... We are all different in how we give and receive love, and that the key to a flourishing relationship is to learn how to speak the other person's love language when most of us want to love a person the way we want to be loved and often miss loving them the way they need to be loved. So when I do premarital counseling, I'll say something like this. If your love language is physical touch, you would tend to think that hugging your wife, touching her hand, whispering sweet nothings in her ear, communicates love to her. My wife's primary love language is acts of service. I am never more attractive to Ruth Ann when I take out the garbage I'm irresistible to her when I vacuum not only the carpet, but under the couch cushions. <laughs> did, did, I, did I look like... Okay. I didn't know if I looked that parched or what is going on. Uh, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that at times 
When it comes to the relationships we have, we love people out of the way we want to be loved and are often oblivious to speaking their love language. I think it is the same in our relationship with God. Jesus would say to his disciples, I want you to love as I have loved you. Love is not left undefined. If Jesus just kind of made a general statement and said, I just want you to love everybody, then every one of us can decide what that looks like. But Jesus paints for us a picture of love that is beyond the emotional, beyond the feeling, and gives for us a picture throughout the Gospels and John in particular of a love that gives itself entirely for the hope and life of others. When Jesus says, I want you to love as I have loved you, he is painting for us a picture of love that does not come naturally in a world in which we think that it is what we feel that determines our love. The Bible will have us know that love is defined in the willful surrender and sacrifice for the sake of the other. And in our text, Mary shows what true love is. She shows us a perspective of love that is uncomfortable because it challenges our pragmatism when it comes to love. We measure it, we count it, and we don't want to do anything that appears to be wasteful, but Mary subverts poor perspectives of love to show us that when Jesus, when God is your greatest treasure, you may respond with opulence and sacrifice and the things that she does to him in that home that makes no sense to those around her. But because she knows his value and his worth, she will do whatever it takes to honor him. What a dinner this is. In the Gospels, a lot happens in the home. In this particular home, just preceding Jesus entering this particular home, he is literally undercover. Uh, some people have gotten really upset with him because he, uh, he resurrected a man from the dead. Here's the problem. When Jesus resurrected him, it shone a light on Jesus and and all of a sudden, there's a growing concern that if people start believing that this man can resurrect the dead, he's going to pose a threat to the religion of the day and to the government of the day. And if we're going to deal with this threat, we're going to have to take him out. So the kind of dinner party that is happening here is happening under this awareness that there is a growing threat against Jesus. And as this awareness is there, there's also in the back of the mind of Martha and Mary, also another memory, one that just happened in the previous chapter where Jesus apparently showed up too late to resuscitate their brother because he had already died and had been in the grave for days. But Jesus is 
always on time. And Jesus shows up after Lazarus has been bound and he's been put in a tube. And Jesus comes and he calls him out of his death into life. And he shows and proves in that very moment that indeed he is the resurrection and the life. And in the back of Mary and Martha's mind is not only a memory, but there sits a person, Lazarus. Can you imagine? <laughs> Sitting at the same table, somebody that we had just laid to rest. Someone we had just buried. Someone we had just anointed and said our four farewells to. Somebody that's not supposed to be there is now at the table because the one that is in that place makes all things possible. And while everybody else does what comes naturally to them, Mary falls at his feet because she knows something about him that others are not paying attention to. The one that sits in this house is the one that will overcome Satan's sin and death and Mary being who she is. She knows that the best place to be is as close to the one that can stare death in the face and bring forth life. If you want to know how to love God, not on our terms, but on his terms. It begins by drawing close to Jesus. I know that we have been through a lot. Do you know the, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? The architectural design of churches in the 70s and 80s all uh, had inverted ship's hulls as the kind of defining architectural shape of churches. Do you know, do you know why they did that? You didn't know that they did that, did you? Some of you do? Okay. Hey, I'm teaching you something. The, the mentality was something like Noah's Ark. That the church has to be in a boat saved from the storm. And while I appreciate the idea behind that, uh, the one who sits at Lazarus's table invites a following that is not about preservation and safety, but facing even the most horrific in this world so that it can be overcome by the power of God. If you want to know how to love God, it begins by not diminishing the very threat that most of us live with. That there is a reality to our human existence. We are frail. We are not built to last. In fact, I wake up every day with pains that have no just cause. I haven't stretched that muscle. I don't know why it hurts. There are those amongst us who are dealing with the reality of illness in ways that is making them all think very carefully about their mortality. You see, when Mary 
sits at the feet of Jesus, she's aware and she, unlike the disciples, is willing to accept that this is the God who has come. He is the one who will die. He is the one who will give his life away. And where Peter and the rest of the disciples says no, Mary bows and anoints him for his burial. She understands that that is what love does. The God who has come to embody our flesh and to live amongst us has come so that he may overcome only by suffering and going through the way of the cross. And when Mary anoints them, she shows us a perspective of love that is loving Jesus for who he is and not who she would choose or anyone else would choose him to be. If we want to speak the language of God and the language of God's love, then we must make room in our worship of him for even our human frailty and the inevitability of our end. But at the same time, the one who is being anointed also promises resurrection. What is the invitation this morning? I just spoke all of that from memory. I missed some good notes. I had it in pink. <laughs> Not earth-shattering, but very simple thoughts. Mary is always at the feet of Jesus, the posture of humility and attentiveness. It is at the feet of Jesus that Mary grasps more, understands more. The Christian life that is lived at a distance to who Jesus is or in postures of pride and privilege misses the way in which Jesus invites a particular following, a particular way of being Christian. She does not only sit at his feet, but the scripture becomes quite graphic if you understood the customs of the day. She anoints his feet with expensive oil that is customary used only for burials. And then she does what is even more shocking to the people of her day. She unties her hair and uses her hair as a towel to wash his feet. Mary leads as a disciple by doing for Jesus what Jesus would teach his disciples to do for others. She learns to serve at the feet of the master. She learns to give that which others count as expensive. She learns to put herself before him as a disciple who understands his worth. And therefore, as Jesus has said, where her heart is, there her treasure is. Her treasure is with Jesus. And she shows in a worship of him that makes no sense perhaps to those around her. That she understands that he is owed so much more than she has. When Jesus becomes our greatest treasure, 
When Jesus becomes our obsession as his people, the things that we do may not make sense for others, but it would reveal his worth and his value in a world in which value is hard to come by. She listens. She worships. And at his feet, she even learns to serve. What Jesus will ask of his disciples after washing their feet in just a few chapters later, Mary has already done for him. What a woman of faith. You know what Peter says when Jesus washes his feet? No, 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 no. (laughs) You don't do that. You know what Jesus says to Peter? If you don't allow me to serve you, you can't have any part of me. You know what Mary shows us? Mary shows us the essential posture and place of those who love Jesus. Humility. And love for him that requires a commitment and a willingness to sacrifice in order to acknowledge who he truly is. The second thing that uh, Mary does, she recognizes the significance of the time she has with Christ. Judas objects because he says if we sold this, we could get a year's labor's wage. And we could do a lot with that money. And just to make sure we don't think this is kind of different love languages at work, Mary speaks of oil and anointing, while Judas speaks of the poor. John the evangelist makes a very clear point. He's a thief. He's not interested in helping the poor. He just wants to hold more money. And then Jesus corrects one of his own disciples and says, hold on a second. She is preparing me for burial. And he makes this statement, which has often been widely misrepresented in the church. You'll always have the poor with you. It's a Deuteronomy reference where it says, There will always be the poor. Open your hands to them at all times. But Jesus says to Judas, you'll always have the poor. To say this, don't make the poor an excuse for what needs to happen right here. For you will always have them, but you won't always have me. Over the years as a pastor, as I visited with people who have been on their deathbed, it is both a challenging experience but also a great privilege, especially when people are of faith. There is something significant that happens. There is a a re-evaluation of what matters in moments like that. Very seldom does a person who knows that they are leaving this earth want to talk about the flame's terrible setback last night. Very seldom do people who know that their time is coming want to discuss the things that perhaps we find ourselves discussing. 
but it is as if time's significance dawns upon them and they recognize the value of that which is before them. Mary understands what Judas and perhaps the rest of the disciples don't. That in the very moment that Jesus is there, she has that time and that moment to honor him. We live as if we will live forever. Do you know why the season of Lent begins with Ash Wednesday? It's not some kind of somber, like, like just, why are you so negative, Pastor Stu, type of service. It's to remind us that we have been all given a time in which to live a life that is faithful. And the question I want to ask you is, do you understand? Do you understand the gift of the time that you've been given and the value of this life to honor God, to worship Him, to live for them? I learned this lesson when I lost my family. Some of you have learned this lesson when you've lost a loved one. We cannot live as if tomorrow is promised. But as the people of God, cease the very day that is given to us by the grace of God and choose to worship him to the very best of your ability. To the very best of your ability. She demonstrates that Jesus is her greatest treasure and her greatest hope. Hmm. And she risks not only reputation, she risks so much, she gives so much, because the one whom she serves and knows is worth even more. One of the challenges, I think, in reading Scripture is to read it not only as somebody who wants to share my insights with you, but it is also to hear the word for myself. Many years ago, I got on a plane. And God brings this memory to my mind often. It is the first time I ever flew. It was January the 7th. 1998, I was bumped up to first class for my first flight. Just have you know, I know what that life tastes like. <laughs> I was brought back down to reality. When I landed in Amsterdam, I was thrown in the back of the bus. I left home because there was deep conviction that whatever God wants, I will do. 
as I've grown older, it is harder to live with such a commitment. It feels a little bit more costly. Back then, it was just me. And yet, I want to profess to you today, my friends whom I love, even those of you who disagree with me, that this is my desire and this is my hope. As Kelly comes and as I close this message, I want to invite you to respond to the Word of God. Perhaps you just want to take a moment to reflect quietly about the priorities on your life and where that time and space is for the ways of God. Maybe today the word has come to you as an invitation to give up some things that have become more important than it should. But maybe this morning there's also an invitation for those who are so filled with gratitude for God's faithfulness and the hope we have in Him that what you want to do is sing His praise and His glory. Amen.